the internet has just been like, has just dissolved a lot of trust and consensus in a lot of institutions. Mm -hmm. And so the Web3 architects are designing for a world in which those institutions aren't around to say, this is what email means. And we're, we all have to build on this just because, right? <laughs> They're assuming that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And things like blockchain or Web3 are ways for various participants in an ecosystem to agree on a state of the world such that they can talk to each other, whether mm -hmm. that be things like email or transferring value or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And so Web3, it's funny. Every aspect of American society is on a nostalgia trip, right? And you've, and you've got literally the conservatives want to go to you know 1958, the tradicons want to go to 1658, the Obamaites want to go to 2008, the neocons want to go to 2002, and then the Iraq War. Everyone wants to return to some to some time. Well, guess what? Web three people also want to return to web web one times when you had like open protocols and you built on top of them, yeah. and nobody could unplug you from anything, yeah. right? Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we are back for another episode of season two. This is season two, episode two, or episode 46, whatever we decide to end up calling it. Um, thank you guys for coming back again, and we have another fantastic episode for you guys. Um, a reminder that we have two programs that you need to apply for uh, that are uh, imminently closing in applications. One of them might have already closed. I don't know. It depends on when this exactly comes out. We have the Fellowship for American Statecraft, which is our flagship 12-week uh, program in the summer where we pay kids $3,000 a month to get their first job in Washington, D.C. Um, we are looking to grow that program this year. We have hundreds of applicants rolling in. Be sure to apply. This program is for people who otherwise would have a very hard time breaking into DC. So don't think that you're not credentialed enough or that you don't have enough experience. If you're on side ideologically with us, you have a long-term vision for how you want to stay involved, chances are you will be very competitive for the program. You can go to AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship. Last year, we partnered with organizations like the Center for Immigration Studies, the Republican Study Committee, members of Congress like Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Josh Hawley. Uh, there's a ton of great opportunities, and there's probably one that's a fantastic fit for you. So be sure to fill that out. Second thing is Foundations of American Statecraft. It's a 10-week credentialing program where we focus on a specific policy area one evening a week for 10 weeks. Uh, three hours, we'll buy you dinner. We'll uh, have a, a couple of great speakers. There'll be just about 15 of uh, you guys in this first round of the program. Um, but be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org slash foundations if you're someone who's already in D.C., a junior staffer, and you're looking to really earn that first policy job and, and start making a substantive impact on the issues we care about in DC, because you need to be able to demonstrate that you're fluent in these issues, that you're aligned. This program is the way to demonstrate that in a very practical, tangible way. And lastly, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join if you just want to get involved right now. A member of our team will meet with you and will find ways for you to get plugged in, whether it's on the Hill at a public policy organization, allied business, or whatever. Reach out. We want to help make sure that you guys get off the internet and actually start implementing uh, everything that you care about. We love it that you listen to this podcast, but chances are you have so much more that you can contribute to the work um, that we all need to do in order to implement the priorities that we yammer on about at this show. And if uh, the way that you'd like to contribute is financially, you can go to AmericanMoment.org slash donate. But who do we have on today? Well, we have on a man from the internet. In fact, um, one of the men who created the internet. Not really. Um, we have on Antonio Garcia Martinez, who is, who is not friends with Al Gore. Is this known? Well, I'm saying, wasn't the whole thing that like Al Gore created the internet? No, and if he, he did not do that. <laughs> um, but AGM, as he is often called, is most recently a senior fellow at the Lincoln Network, which is a really cool organization that focuses on the intersection of technology, media, free speech, and culture uh, here in D.C. and in Silicon Valley. Uh, that is not the Lincoln Project, which is that pedophile group that no one really likes. Um, no, this is the Lincoln Network, and they do a lot of really cool stuff at the intersection of technology and policy. And AGM recently joined as a fellow there. He is a uh, 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 very popular on the Twitter machine, very popular in the tech mm -hmm. spaces. If you are hyper online people, you 
you probably follow him, but he is uh, has an absolutely fascinating background. He uh, was the founder of a Y Combinator-backed startup, um, uh, the first product manager for targeted advertising at Facebook, um, the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Chaos Monkeys. He was a Wired columnist and advisor at Twitter, a quantitative analyst at Goldman Sachs. He was hired and fired from Apple recently in the matter of like five days. Um, uh, he, Which was very cool, yes. by the way. <laughs> um, and he has uh, a substack called The Pull Request, where he uh, dives into everything uh, on policy, on religion, on culture, on tech. Um, he's brilliant. Um, he talks very fast and about many things. And uh, we'll see if Nick can keep up for the next hour or so. Well, so I actually remember when we went to uh, the, the realignment conference when we were in Florida I've been to Florida so many times over the last couple of months. I can't even remember what city that was in. But uh, I remember listening to to AGM talk, uh, and it was I was sitting here. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know like what to write down because there's like so much good content yeah. going on. Yeah. Um, Antonio yeah. is a uh, Cuban by ethnicity, but he converted to Judaism a few years ago, and he seems to have uh, you know osmotically taken in that whole talking fast thing that some of our Jewish friends do pretty rapidly in the time since. So uh, he's a smart cookie. Uh, very interesting. Uh, if you want to find out why he converted to Judaism, he has a very interesting pull request uh, on that. Uh, in short, for Nietzschean reasons, in his own view. Again, weird, interesting, awesome guy. Uh, we're going to have an awesome episode with him coming up here. And thank you guys for coming back for another episode of Moment of Truth. We'll go to Antonio now. Antonio, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me part of your uh, vast right-wing conspiracy over That's here. right. <laughs> You're, you have finally come to the swamp. You've officially sold out. How does it feel? <laughs> uh, it, it's amazing. There's... There's way more alcoholism and way less graft than I thought there would be, to be honest. Oh, yeah. You're just in the wrong circles. I mean, the <laughs> really? alcoholism is endemic. All right. This is the right, the- <laughs> not the left. On the left, it's the other way around. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, much more graft and much less alcohol. They're all into weed. You know, There's an entire... Um, entomology or, or taxonomy of like what substance people in dc are into so like you hear about the factions of the right that are alcoholics versus cokeheads you hear about on the left it's like weed versus molly in certain places there's the, the, there's a te- i'm sure this is the case in the tech world they probably well. don't have drug tests to pass because they don't actually work for the security state no probably. no um that's why all the mormons work at cia and stuff is because, <laughs> because they don't have any of these problems um uh, we always like to hear about uh someone's background and i think your background is one of the most interesting of any of the guests we've had on why don't you tell us how you ended oh, up man. uh in this dark and horrible place in dc walk us <laughs> walk us back to early agm <laughs> right it's like this is like one of these like you know drug addicts or like we're in AA. like how did you get to the bottom of the <laughs> yeah. how did you end up here <laughs> Um, yeah, what's the short version? So I basically, uh, dropped out of a PhD program in physics at Berkeley of all places, went to work at Goldman in the middle of the credit crisis, saw the world blew up and moved back to the West coast for technology where I've been for the past, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, mostly involved in turning human attention and data into money in various forms. So for example, if you, you know, go browse for a certain pair, you know, pair of shoes, and then you see those shoes inside your Instagram feed. In a very That's distant, <laughs> original, historical way, I was responsible for that. I built uh, some of the early targeting products at Facebook right around the time of the IPO. I wrote a book that, is, unfortunately, is not here, but we have to get you a copy called Chaos Monkeys that came out in 2016 that tells a lot of that story. I also founded a company, sold it to Twitter, which is how I ended up there. And basically, I've been bouncing between you know the tech and media worlds for the past, I don't know, call it five, six years. Mm-hmm. And more recently, I've added a third circle to the Venn diagram, which is politics. I'm a senior fellow at the Lincoln Network, which is another swamp creature sort mm-hmm. of organization which is what I've been doing for the past couple of days. We're big, we're big fans of Lincoln Network. So let's zoom back to to the point of point of time at which you would have joined uh, Facebook or, or or started in Silicon Valley after leaving Goldman. Um, what what was it like? I mean, it, 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 we we just assume that these people who now like are the most powerful uh, corporate titans in the country were just always like that. But no, like that there was a process by which this yeah. all happened. What? Tell us what that world was like pre Facebook IPO. Yeah, there narrowly, but also Silicon Valley more broadly. Yeah, Silicon Valley I think used to be a lot more fun. I mean, there there's very few sort of insider books that I think give the flavor of it. I mean, one being sort of autoerotic self-citation. My book is one. <laughs> There's another book that just came out recently. I'm, I'm actually having most of the early founders of PayPal to drop a plug on my on my social podcast show called Pull Request. Uh, the book is called The Founders by Jimmy Sani, and uh, it's it's an early history of of early PayPal. And I'll have Peter Thiel and Max Lepch and all these guys on my show next week. But um, it, you know, it, both my my book or that book illustrate how it was. You know, now it seems very hegemonic and, you know, big tech is this great enemy. 
But, you know, a lot of it's just like really geeky, smart people just making it up as they go along and just figuring out what it is. And, and you know, their mantra then, not so much now, was, you know, move fast and break things. It was literally written on posters on the wall. But I, I think it's a general characterization of Silicon Valley. You can see it at Uber and other places. And the idea is just that, that, you know, you just slam the gas as far as you can. And, you know, whatever negative or positive externalities accrue to society, well, it's somebody else's problem, which, you know, I think it's a legit critique of tech, actually, in many ways. But that, that's kind of what it was like. Um, and, you know, I joined right before the IPO. You know, I was not like an early employee by Facebook standards, although now it seems early. But it's still it was still very um, it was still very improvisational. Right. Like, I, you know, literally pitching Zuck on the idea of like this weird ad targeting technology, which is the chapter that opens the book. And uh, it's just because I raised my hand and said, oh, we got to do this. And there's an IPO. We got to boost revenue. And it just happened. Right. It's uh, it's very different than it is now, from what I understand. And, and yeah, well, one of the distinctions that I, I and it, it's probably something in between. But, you know, people think of Silicon Valley people as either nerds or as people who want to make a ton of money. And it seems like this yeah. is the, it's, it's the first, uh, it doesn't seem historically very common that you have like both in, in that place. Like what motivated the kinds of people that were coming to Silicon Valley around the time that, that you did? I mean, wh what were those people like? It's a type of guy that is not common elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the money thing really isn't front and center. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think Facebook people are just or tech people in general are openly greedy in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, very unlike Wall Street. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> people don't believe it because I think it's it seems un you know impossibly earnest that they would actually not be about money, but they really aren't. And actually, I make this point in my book that actually it's if you think about it again, just to, to use Zuckerberg as an example, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the founder of Facebook, you know his goal in life is to have all of human social life intermediated by Facebook, right? Like that that is his monomaniacal goal in life, right? And if you think about it, that's actually far scarier than being greedy, right? <laughs> because you know a greedy a greed at the end of the day behaves rationally, and who cares? Mm -hmm. It's a story is all this time, mm -hmm. but to actually sit there and rip apart you know human social life and, and remediate it is different. And yeah. I, it's I like Tower of Babel type stuff, <laughs> right? And I, I'm, it's not necessarily negative. I think Facebook is positive in many ways, but but that's the thing, right? Like or you look at what's happening now with like Web3 and crypto, which we can get into in the show if you want. But it's, you know, it's it's super popular. And, you know, you've got engineers who are making good money at fan companies like Facebook and Apple and so on, leaving it to go and create the technologies that will subvert their previous employers. Right. Like, I think that's what people don't understand. Silicon Valley has this almost religious ethos around disrupting and innovating and creating the next cool thing for the sake of creating the next cool thing, irrespective of what comes downstream of that. And one thing I've been saying in my little DC tour is that I think like anyone who views a world from the outside, you seem, you tend to view it monolithically. And the same way tech views DC, by the way. But you know, tech is not tech is not just one thing, right? And arguably, in my opinion, the fan companies and their policy people, the Google and whatever shields they have running around here, that's one side of tech, right? But I would claim that the true spirit of tech is really in some of the VCs and a lot of the founders who are actually creating new companies and the that sort of religious attitude towards constant disruption and innovation. That's that's the real tech world, mm -hmm. and that in some sense DC is grappling with. The people who were cool ten years ago, in some sense, <laughs> who are now the big companies, but they're losing employees left and right to all mm -hmm. sorts of new companies that are doing other things. Um, and, and if anything, those companies seem kind of old and stale by now. Um, yeah. So I'm curious about that. I saw this interesting thread by someone anonymous on Twitter. You know, as it goes, uh, a couple of weeks ago, this guy's like product manager. And was talking about how they haven't built anything new for their their company in years. It's all been focused on a lot of this like just you know woke hr stuff you know that that you know has been talked about a lot in the media over the last couple of years um but uh why do you think that is like why are a lot of these large companies i mean to throw out you know facebook uh uber you know whatever any of these apps tech companies uh whatever you want to call them why why are we kind of seeing this exodus of people like leaving that world and starting new things and and these these large companies not really creating a lot of new stuff yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, the woke thing is definitely an issue inside those companies. I wouldn't say it's causal. Like, I don't think those companies are stagnating because of wokeness, although it certainly doesn't help. Um, I think it's it's just it's hard to create the future. You have to be able, you have to be willing to take certain risks. And once you have a certain revenue model, and once you have a certain way of looking at the world, it's very difficult. Again, you know, I'm still very pro Facebook, and I still kind of bleed blue in certain ways. So, like, I, I'm not just sitting here bashing my former employer to be clear, because I, I hate those people. Like. Get, not that I got wealthy, but those who d got really wealthy and then like turned their backs on their company, it's like, well, mm -hmm. did you give your money back? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm definitely not one of these guys, but 
But it's true, if you want to be critical about Facebook, it, it is true that they tried experimenting with creating new apps. We've probably forgotten all about them. They basically created clones of Snapchat and all these companies. None of them took off, right? Mm -hmm. And so they either acquire other companies like Instagram and WhatsApp, which again, you know, Facebook would kind of be dying without them, right? Like the Facebook app itself is not growing. Um, or they copy features from it, like the Stories feature or other things, right? And so you're right, they're not creating sort of new innovation. Like Facebook has not launched a radically new viral feature that they themselves came up with in, I don't know how many, since I was there basically, mm -hmm. right? And so that's the reality. I think it's just that's just the nature of uh, human innovation. I mean, at some point you scare out the people who would do well in that environment. I mean, even in my case, right? Like, you know, I was super like early founder, stepped on a lot of toes, was not the smartest person about my own career, which ended up biting me in the ass. And so I was kind of basically forced to leave. But, <laughs> but, you know, I think that happened with lots of people. Like, you know, their strategy used to be what's called aqua hiring. You basically acquire companies, bring in the entrepreneurs. And in some sense, that entrepreneurial DNA inoculates you against stagnation the thought yeah. is but most of them don't stick around um, right. as indeed the founders of instagram and whatsapp did not um although i would claim those acquisitions were very successful obviously and very mm -hmm. good acquisitions on the part of facebook um so yeah i think it's just it's just a natural you know cycle of life of companies yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so i want to ask too about um you know the ad targeting and stuff specifically we didn't talk about this before the show but i actually used to work in digital marketing before uh you know we we launched american moment so i came into it in like 2016 and I was uh, generating leads for real estate agents at like five yeah. cents a piece uh, and you <laughs> you phys yeah physically cannot do like any of that stuff anymore yeah. I'm just I'm curious as to you know uh, the ad targeting how Facebook is kind of self-limited in some ways it seems like to cut themselves off at the knees so Congress won't on on certain issues I'm curious you know what your thoughts are on on all that yeah, so ads targeting at Facebook. I was I was Facebook's first ads targeting PM, not through any brilliant of mine. It was just again a strange set of circumstances that my company sold to Twitter. Facebook was interested. The company got kind of split, and I ended up on the Facebook side of it. Whatever. Long story. It's in the first half of my book if you want to read the details. Um, yeah, and I just landed there. There was like five or six product teams at the time. Like total ad team size at the time was roughly thirty some odd people. <laughs> right mm. now, obviously it's thousands. Yeah. Um, and. Um, Ads targeting is a funny thing, right? It, it can mean it can mean different things, and I think people often misunderstand it, um, um, or mi yeah, um, for various reasons. I mean, for starters, a lot of the data that's used to actually target you on Facebook it doesn't even come from Facebook, right? Because mm -hmm. the reality is, I mean, Facebook does have some data that that's interesting in terms of like how often do you click and who do you know. There's like second order data that's interesting, but if you're worried about like, oh, I did or said a thing, and then Facebook showed me an ad for it. The reality is Facebook actually isn't showing you the ad. So, you know, some other third party, REI, because you browsed a thing, mm -hmm. or if you're in a red state, Cabela's, right? That's the big <laughs> yeah. divide. REI Cabela's <laughs> is the big divide in, in America. Um, then, you know, what Facebook does is it joins your data to the outside world such that Cabela's can reach you, right? Mm -hmm. And so what Facebook provides is an identity layer, right? Because not so much anymore, but at one point, everybody was on Facebook. That's literally the first thing you log mm -hmm. into when you've gone on a device. And that identity layer is actually hard, right? Because if you think about it, your identity is fragmented over, you know, three different browsers, right? And two different devices. And how do you unify the view of all that stuff? Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what Facebook actually provides. Or if I target you for a thing, guess what? You two are probably similar to each other due to reasons of demography, income, and all the rest of it. So if you- yeah, we're definitely yes, dem I was about to say, demographically, we are very similar. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, look at this obvious. Yeah. So if you're two Indians, yes. <laughs> so if you're willing to buy a thing, then he's probably willing to buy a thing, and so that sort of thing. And so that that's how a lot of the targeting plays into it. But it's it's not necessarily as it's not as simple as like Facebook is showing me an ad for because oh they overheard my conversation, which by the way they don't listen to conversations at all. It would be technically difficult and be it, would, it wouldn't actually be very useful. But the, they do unify that identity and make it possible so other people advertise to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what I'm what I'm like specifically curious about is I mean, and take political advertising as an example, yeah. right? Not something that they were, um, you know, required to limit in any, in any sense of the term. And I mean, not I don't, yet. I, not, yet. I, yeah, yeah. not yet. That's very true. Yeah. I don't want you to give away anything like, like proprietary. I'm no, just no, no, curious no, no. as to, you know, what you think is kind of driving this, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they want to innovate and they want to make money. Um, but they're also limiting themselves in some way. It almost seems like to me to, to be able to maintain some kind of public image that's still positive, you know, I. But yeah, you're but much more of an insider than me. So. Yeah, but I think those limitations come to play not in the product per se. I mean, there's somewhat there, like certainly certain ethnically sensitive categories you can't quite target because mm -hmm. it would be considered weird. Yeah. Or the behavior that would follow from that would look embarrassing. Mm -hmm. I think most of where you see, see the public pressure is things like content moderation. Um, it's things like privacy, privacy, the, the the push to privacy, right? In quotes, whatever that means. I'm putting yeah. it in quotes because I think. 
the common notion of privacy and the legal notion of privacy are, are often very different. Yeah. Um, apparently, the modern notion of privacy means having little pop-ups in every website you go to. Do you, do you, do you feel more protected now? Yeah. Um, not really. Right? What are cookies? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that's where the pressure gets really applied. And then, and then on the organic side, like the other thing with ads is like, so I, I was briefly in charge of the like ads policing team that would actually enforce the the, the ads to back before that was actually. A I was cool going to say I hated you. Yeah. <laughs> well, hated right. You. Well, well, then don't put naked women in the ad, bro. Okay, sorry. That's or don't put text in the photo, which is obviously in the terms of service. And yeah, that used to be like a terrible assignment. Now it's obviously a very important assignment because of all the the attention they've gotten. It's a much bigger team. Um, but you know, in the ads world, you know. Not a lot of people give First Amendment speeches around ads, right? And mm. but on the organic side, it's very different, right? So there, I think it's a little bit harder. And you know, mm. Kevin Roos of the New York Times constantly tweeting that the top post on Facebook is from Ben Shapiro, week in, week out, uh, as if it's some sort of you know injustice against nature. Um, well, there you go. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I guess we need more content moderation, yeah. um, censorship. So yeah. Was there any sense of how impactful? the ad tech would be when you came up with it? And it's a good question. Because it's funny, at the time, the, the, the other election was going on when I was there, 2012, the Obama election, and uh, the political budgets were so small, we just didn't even think of pitching them because, like, who cares? Like, it just wasn't enough money. And even now, it's not really that big of a fraction. Like, if we ever just ban political ads on these platforms, which I think there's an outside chance of actually happening. Mm -hmm. Twitter did, just got rid of it. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's either because it's going to be outside pressure or the companies are like, you know, as a fraction of our revenue, it's like 3%. It's just not worth the headache. Like, mm -hmm. screw it. We're just not having political ads. It's possible. Um, it's funny because, you know, <laughs> they, you know, Lincoln Network has me reading bills now and a lot of them regard ad tech regulation because we're getting to the point where like technology launched almost, I guess, 10 years ago now. And finally, we're getting to the, and then, you know, the journalists pick up on it like five years later mm -hmm. and then DC picks up on it five years later. So 10 years later, as this technology is already becoming a little obsolete, mm -hmm. they're actually starting to regulate it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, the politicians actually are the ones that engage in some of the highest ad targeting, right? So there's this thing called, most people don't remember, there's this thing called the voter file, mm -hmm. which a lot of your voter records are actually public record. Yep. And that gets joined to a lot of other consumer data, which heretofore is relatively unregulated because in the U.S. you don't regulate a lot of consumer privacy for good or for good or ill. And so they're the ones who actually upload the biggest lists. Like I, I did a story for Wired in 2018 for the midterms looking at like, political ad tech. And it's, I was surprised at how sophisticated it was. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Like this, this isn't crap. Um, and so it's interesting, <laughs> you know, well, I was reading some of like, uh, what's your name? Um, Congresswoman issue, I think from California's bill yeah. that basically more or less bans targeted advertising. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering like, do most of these politicians realize that if they pass this bill, they themselves are not going to be able to get themselves reelected in the next election <laughs> because I'm sure they're spending, yeah. you know, gobs of money on, on Facebook. Um, and it would be very ironic in that committee meeting if I were ever to testify there or whatever to actually look and, you know, go to the Facebook ads archive and actually see like how well, much money Well, the incumbents would be fine. Probably. <laughs> probably, you know, right. it'd, be, it'd be their challengers that would be utterly screwed because right. one of the vehicles they have to actually generate new new name ID would go away. Right. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting, though, when you work with these candidates. I mean, I, I did it a ton again before we before we started American Moment and like. These people have no clue what any of this is, you know, when you're when you're working with candidates or, or people, by the way, who are like already in office, they don't understand the difference between like organic posts and ads. I think a lot of the time that disconnect is is between like they're saying things in official capacity and then there's like a campaign manager on the campaign side and they're just right. like doing stuff and it's they're just not you know, exercising good oversight into their own campaign, I guess, and yeah. being accidentally hypocritical. Yeah. Um, what a, so y y the, the political side of things was obviously just unexpected in terms of how much it would grow. But in terms of, it, it seems like the targeted advertising, to the extent you can point to one discrete thing that changed the way people perceived what it meant to be on the internet, it, it seems like it's the product you could point to. I mean, because it's- Is it's, it? I mean, wh what I else like would what wh what else tangibly speaking does the ordinary consumer see on a day to day basis on the internet that makes them feel a little weird? It's the fact. That oh well, the stuff is following them, right? Uh, I guess right. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I've said that like, ads target is either it's either crappy or it's creepy. There's no in between, right? It's either yeah. like horrible. Look at this joke. Facebook ads doesn't work. It's like, oh, this is weird. We must regulate Facebook. I, I don't know. I would say on the organic side and the cultural side, the existence of things like cancel mobs, the amplification of outrage, increasing polarization nationally, like those are the things that have, I think, really turned people off of the internet. Not the fact that like ads from D to C brands are like way more targeted. In fact, you're going to get the beard oil ad and you're not somehow, <laughs> right? Like. I don't know that that really creeps out people as much as like all the other crap you find on the internet. Yeah. 
And whether or not it creeps people out, is this something that any of those guys in Silicon Valley think about when uh, when they're oh, creating they, their they, products? Oh, they have to now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at, when, at the time, yeah. like back in the early days, no. But now, from what I understand, privacy is a huge deal. Yeah. Like half of what they do is just complying with privacy regulations in some form or another. Wow. Um, but at the time when when the social network rage was really taking off, you know, around the right. time that Facebook would IPO, you'd get Instagram and Snapchat and all these other platforms soon after. Um, what what was your sense of how tech people who are generally a little bit strange thought they were doing <laughs> in, in terms of the social consequences of uh, good or bad of, of what they would do? What was there? something philanthropic or, or, or oh yeah yeah I know there's definitely a, there's a sense, like, like I said there's a sense of missionary zeal inside this company not, yeah. again not just Facebook speaking broadly mm-hmm. um, yeah it's almost pseudo-religious in a sense of in the same way that wokeness is kind of like uh, you know like the joke goes it's Protestant integralism right in a way <laughs> right like a lot of this sort of sublimation the religious urge through making a mark in the world is through these startups and yeah. so again at least at the time, Facebook was very, and other companies, again, I'm just using an example that I'm most familiar with, were very mission-driven. Like a more open and connected world was really the mission. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was seen as more or less an unqualified good. Um, at a darker level, I hate to engage in like the social network movie tropes because that movie was so inaccurate, at least from my, from my from my experience. But like the thought that, you know, nerds are, a little, you know, a lot of the tech people are a little bit on the spectrum, uh, a little bit weird, a little <laughs> bit too into screens and are meeting everything. Yeah. And then basically creating products that forces the world to meet them halfway. Yeah. I don't think that's completely wrong either, yeah. actually. And certainly I'm, a, I, I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. I spend yeah. way too much of my time on screens. Um, <laughs> and like the whole Zoom thing, like when COVID came, I'm like, oh, I don't know, it's kind of a good idea. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, so when, you know, COVID came lockdown, you know, California was like super locked down. And I was noticing that my friends like, you know, the rhetoric was like, oh, the lockdown is terrible, which it was for many people, to be clear. But a lot of my friends were actually seemed happier and healthier and like living better. And some moved out of San Francisco. Yeah. So I actually held a Twitter poll, which obviously non-scientific and obviously my followers is not representative, but it does skew to Silicon Valley. Over 30 percent of people said I asked them, like, under COVID lockdown, is your life better, same or worse? Mm-hmm. Right. 30% said it was better actually under lockdown. Well, but isn't that the case for like the professional managerial class in general? But I think, yeah, but the techies, I think in particular are like, yes, I'm fine to intermediate my entire working life via screen. Yeah. And then I can go exercise, like whatever, like those are separate worlds. Like I, I definitely think there is something to the notion that there's like this level of techno Gnosticism, Gnosticism being this, not just Christian, but many religious traditions have this sort of heresy that divides life between sort of the physical and the spiritual realm, right? Mm-hmm. The physical world is venal and corrupt, and the spiritual realm is enlightened and rarefied and unique, and we should all aspire to like transmutate ourselves into the into the spiritual world. I do think there's something to that, to techies wanting to live in this spiritual realm um, that like is beyond the ugliness of everyday life. Is and this why you see Jack Dorsey looking like the Dalai Lama, like <laughs> spending, you know, yeah, weeks I, in a cabin I don't know in the Himalayas? All, so <laughs> I, I, I can't speculate. Yeah. Um, He's definitely to the weird side of that that continuum. Um, the, the, the one reason I think that Jack Dorsey is ultimately a fairly normal person is that like he has a normal looking girlfriend, which is like a good sign because like the concern would be if he was like weird in all those ways and also like was dating a 65 year old lady or something like, you know, like that, that would be like, okay, this is just like a pervert and a weirdo at a certain level. I, I, I do think, I mean, again, I think tech is the extreme of almost everything going on in American society. I do think it's weird that we create a society that basically you have to be crazy to thrive in. Like you basically, it's basically monetizing some form of like psychopathology or another. Yeah. And I think in tech, to really be at the sort of Dorsey, Zuck, Elon, whatever level, you have to be basically mm-hmm. crazy. You have to be a total lunatic. Yeah. But a lunatic in the right way. And so I, I definitely do think there's something to like, man, those people are just weird. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's kind of what I like about the world that that they, that they are. You know, when I come back here, everything is very state. People still wear ties here. They wear suits. I'm wearing a jacket. <laughs> it's all very old school. Yeah. California. Yeah. People do yeah. do weird stuff. Well, you touched on it when you described your background, but one of the critiques of the way our economy works today is that if you're a third standard deviation person in terms of talent, yeah. uh, you are directed towards basically two domains, uh, earning an extra you know trillionth of a cent on a microtransaction on Wall Street or monetizing the attention of your seven-year-old. Yeah. I've, like, done, I've done both. I've you've done, done both. both. <laughs> Get you a man who can do both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that this class of people that have gone on to found essentially like businesses in the software companies for the last 30 years or for the last 10, 20 years or so, do you think that it's been a particularly good use from a kind of national perspective of their time and energy? No, it's funny. I got that question a lot from a lot of the congressional people of like the hardware versus software divide. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, go back. It goes back to Teal's quote about we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters and doesn't that suck? 
I don't know. I, I've only worked in my life in software. Like hardware seems like such a difficult problem to design and do these things and then get it fabricated that I've never really f even projected my mind there. Mm -hmm. um, look, again, I don't think it's wrong. It's a form of Gnosticism, right? Like software, software is a form of alchemy. Like it just transmutes what is literally data and code into value, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, you're literally turning pixels and data into like trillion dollar companies. And mm -hmm. isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I agree. It, it is indeed completely strange mm -hmm. but there it is i mean software is eating the world like i so i know this is like totally true to form i own a tesla entry-level tesla 3 by the way <laughs> don't call me a rich, a rich i want one I, they seem cool <laughs> they, they are super cool yeah but one of the aspects of genius about it and why elon is a genius and i think he is is that he's turned a car a formerly mechanical device into the equivalent of a rolling iphone right like yeah. the hardware is the same from model to model that doesn't actually change that much it's the software that actually makes a different one mm -hmm. so like i get a software update go to the car the next day, it's changed. The UI is different, it works faster, like things are just better and the car just sat there. It's incredible, it's it's turned it into a software device. Mm -hmm. And so, look, I, I would love flying cars and I, I love my Tesla as much as anything, but the reality is even there, like Elon landing rockets on, on their ass in like a barge in the ocean, that's amazing software coupled with very good hardware. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's not gonna go away. So I don't think it's quite such a divide, mm -hmm. I guess, as people are making it out to be. I mean, but at a certain level, people have to develop one set of skills or another, right? And so yeah. computer science skills versus engineering skills yeah. as a baseline divide in the education system yep. means that you're going to get a lot of software companies and not as much hardware. True. Yeah. I don't I don't know if that can be fixed or even it should be fixed. Mm -hmm. I, again, I think rockets are cool. I think we should colonize Mars. I think yeah. space exploration is the next frontier. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, to the backdrop of all of this commercial stuff happening in Silicon Valley, it seems like the political valence of it has changed over time. Uh, what yep. was what was the politics, if you could even call it that, of Silicon Valley like when you first got there? And how has it gone down the tube since? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, this country is, you know, kind of divided by class and education, right? So Silicon Valley, although it did have a certain libertarian streak to it, and I think it functionally still does in its disregard for government. Um, but it's always been kind of left-leading. I mean, who are we kidding? I, I, in terms of political valence, what I would say is like, obviously, you know, Facebook targeting and all that data stuff was great when Obama was using it to win, and suddenly when Trump did, it was terrible. Right? <laughs> suddenly it was evil. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, the platform didn't really change that much yeah. in between, and I really don't buy the whole Russia story. I think, you know, Trump was just better at organic messaging and also better at paid media, and that's how it works, right? Yeah. Um, the other weird thing, though, is like more recently, right, what I, I do find strange is that conservatives have kind of turned against tech, right? And you have, maybe I shouldn't name these politicians because I was talking to some of them yesterday, but um, <laughs> or their staff at least. But, you know, you've got politicians who definitely get up on the stump and sort of rail against tech. And it's strange because, again, if you are conservative, right, which, you know, conservatism in this country has lost every elite institution basically, right, from yeah. academia, government, corporations, right? It's, it's, it's liberal all the way, right? Mm -hmm. The only weapon you have to recapture some of the public square or, you know, if, if your goal in life was, you know, was to burn the New York Times to the ground, right, how would you pursue that? I mean, tech is your only ally. There's mm -hmm. nothing else, right? You're not going to recolonize academia mm -hmm. and do the long march of the institutions like the sort of Marxists did. It's uh, you've got to use tech. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of the leading lights in conservative discussion or at least conservative noise, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro and so on, it's they exist because of Facebook and Twitter. So I, I guess I don't understand why the conservatives are so against tech. I guess they feel censored against, but if that's true, then why is Ben Shapiro the most popular post on Facebook every day? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I find it strange that part of it, I think, is realignment on the right, right? Like the right has gone from like low taxes, you know, pro-business, small government, Reagan Republican types. Like, oh, no, we can be status too. We can use the state to further whatever the common good is. Yeah. In which case, well, then we're going to use the state to go after tech companies because we feel persecuted by yeah. tech companies. But, well. I, so I, I, I think that the point you made about how technology is one of the few vectors we have in order to actually erode the power that the left has in every other institution in American life is 100% true. Yeah. Uh, we had on Alan Bakari, who's uh, the Breitbart tech reporter um, a few months ago, uh, and this is basically his point, is that he's sort of agnostic on a lot of this other policy stuff that you know people are now talking about, whether it's antitrust or Section 230 or any of this stuff. He's just like, will... Uh, like tech from the period of like 2012 to 2015 
was basically the biggest end run around elite liberal institutions the world had ever seen. Right. We like elected a president, created a whole new commentariat class through Twitter and uh, uh, YouTube, um, you know, g generated uh, online communities, the likes of which, like it, it, it was a ton of fun. I remember because I got interested in politics partially through all of those like weird online spaces when I, when I was a teenager. Um, and so someone like him would say, to the extent that they want to see a role for public policy uh, in that, it's it's getting back to it or like keeping it like that, um, doing everything possible to prevent tech from becoming another bureaucratized elite institution um, that is, you know, used against conservatives or closed off to them or is like a tool of power that's only available to one side and not the other. Um, what do you say to that? Um, right. Well, I think you're right. It was it was an end run around it. Um well, I'm going to say, you know, Web3 fixes this, man. <laughs> like the next frontier is yeah. obviously crypto and Web3. Yeah. And so what does that mean, though? Like oh, very God, concretely, this, like this is like the fifth <laughs> time I have to define Web3 today. No, no. Fine. I'm happy to do it again. I know what it is, but for our listeners. Right. I, the, I think the best way to go into it is not to talk about blockchains and a lot of the mathematics of it and stuff, because it's too much hand waving for a podcast. Look at it this way. I, I, your, your demographic probably skews young, but they can probably still make, make the leap. Think back to the early days of the Internet which, you know, going way back to the 90s and early aughts, or think about even email now, right? You know, so-and-so figure got pulled off or booted off Twitter or whatever, right? Trump, for example, got pulled off Twitter. Um, you can't get canceled from email, right? Email just works. Mm -hmm. I mean, Google might decide to whatever, for whatever reason shut down your email account, but email still works. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is, of course, is an open protocol standard that defines what email, what email is mm -hmm. and how you can send and receive email. And everyone builds on top of that, right? Mm -hmm. And that existed, or, or, or other things like the host name and what's called domain name service, the fact that you type in yahoo.com and it goes to a certain thing, those are all just open protocol standards. And that just works agnostically. Nobody controls that really, right? So I mean, there are like consortiums and industry standards and well, things. But that's that the thing. So those, those don't kind of hold water anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the same way that many of our, the internet has just been like, has just dissolved a lot of trust and consensus in a lot of institutions. Mm -hmm. And so the Web3 architects are designing for a world in which those institutions aren't around to say, this is what email means. And we're, we all have to build on this just because, right? <laughs> They're assuming that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And things like blockchain or Web3 are ways for various participants in an ecosystem to agree on a state of the world such that they can talk to each other, whether mm -hmm. that be things like email or transferring value or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And so Web3, it's funny. Every aspect of American society is on a nostalgia trip, right? And you've, and you've got literally the conservatives want to go to you know 1958, the tradicons want to go to 1658, the Obamites want to go to 2008, the neocons want to go to 2002, and then the Iraq War. Everyone wants to return to some to some time. Well, guess what? Web three people also want to return to web web one times when you had like open protocols and you built on top of them, yeah. and nobody could unplug you from anything, yeah. right? So that really is the overarching goal, and that applies to everything from money and decentralized finance or DeFi or, you know, other more interesting applications of that. Some of them might seem a little bit frivolous, like NFTs and like, you know, these crazy apes that you pay money for. It's basically a digital version for, you know, it's, it's digital ownership for digital assets is what it is. And again, the plus side is nobody can, you know, look at the Canadian truckers. They got basically unbanked forcibly by the government, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody can take away your, your, your board apes. Of course, they can get hacked away, <laughs> right? <laughs> like a Russian hacker can basically talk you out of them, yeah. but they can't get taken away, yeah. right? And so that that's the novelty behind Web3. Well, but the... The question that I think keeps on not getting asked because we haven't gotten to that stage yet is what are the benefits that normies get out of the existing order that they will not get through Web3 that they will very quickly want? And for me, uh, on the financial side of things, like if you if your credit card gets stolen and you get charged for yeah. transactions that you did not make, yeah. you can get your money back or like right. the, the bank insurance. And right. so, so do you think that mass amounts of people would give up the security of having these you know semi overlapping layers from government through intermediate intermediating institutions down to the consumer products that they use that they would give them up for an abstract concept of decentralization that by definition only applies to the 10% of society that everyone else wants to boot off these platforms Right, right. Or the people who live like, you know, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, right. who basically live as international fugitives. Like, do you want to live like Assange? Uh, yeah. The answer is probably not, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's a good point, right? Like the, what is the strong consumer use case for Web3 has been a hard question to answer for a while. In the case of Bitcoin, you can certainly set the example of, you know, Venezuelans or Argentinians with weak currency and currency controls who want to move. Think of Bitcoin, obviously, as like emailable gold, effectively, mm -hmm. right? It's digital gold. 
you don't spend gold every day. You wouldn't actually buy stuff with Bitcoin. That said, it's a, it is a store of wealth, a volatile store of wealth, but nonetheless a store of wealth. Yeah. And you can Very just- Very volatile yesterday. Lost like <laughs> yes. 10%. Yeah. Pain. <laughs> Man, buy the dip, buy the dip. Don't worry. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's one consumer use case, but you're right. There, there, there has been a lacuna of, of, of consumer use cases. The standard answer is, well, it's still early. We're still building the protocols, right? If you had asked this question in 1987, you, it would have been the same answer. Like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Email was still hard. There was no webmail, right? Like Hotmail was invented, whatever it was, late 90s. Yeah. You start to use Pine, log into places. Nobody was using it, right? You yeah, you could have asked the same question then. And the idea yeah. being, well, we'll get, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. What have you made of sort of culturally, it's not choices because it was sort of emergent phenomena, but what... Bitcoin or the entire crypto space has turned into like in terms of a cultural phenomenon, like especially in the last year to two years with the yeah. NFTs and everything. What are you disappointed <laughs> in what you've well, seen? It's funny, you know, I'm not such a, I'm so, not so deep in crypto, so it feels odd if like I'm speaking for the ecosystem when yeah. I, I'm not sure that I'm like a fully fledged member yet. But um, I mean, you know more about it than 99.99 percent of people. Okay, yes. in the, right yeah. in in okay. the contours of the city. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm not disappointed by it. I don't know. I, it's its own unique ecosystem with its own little taglines <coughs> and its own cultural weirdnesses but that so much of <laughs> so much of down is downstream of technology right mm -hmm. like culture and politics are both downstream of, econ of economics and economics is downstream of technology and if you look at like what what vital culture and industry do we have in society today that isn't sitting there and castigating itself or engaging in like endless circular firing squads or culture wars like who is actually creating cool new shit mm -hmm. that isn't just like the netflix culture machine it's tech Right, mm -hmm. it's tech. Like crypto, for as much as you might laugh at it or laugh at things like GM, which means good morning, or like NGMI not <laughs> we, gonna make it. We, 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 we know, <laughs> right? but it's like you don't well, have to explain it to us. We were right. there when it was written. Right, right. right. <laughs> but that's but that's the reality, right? It's like yeah. uh, it's interesting new culture, right? Yeah. Well, so do do you think that the overly financial slash commercial, like the, the get rich quick scheme aspect yeah. of this, that doesn't seem like web one like web one was a bunch right. of like grad students right, and like military yeah. contractors but the crypto bros answer to that is like well yes you're right it attracts a lot of opportunists and a lot of scamminess on the other hand it means that financial incentives are being reconciled with on day one mm -hmm. right like the whole counter argument to, to many early web two companies like myspace or Facebook was like well how are you going to make money mm -hmm. right and the answer wasn't clear right like again i was there when facebook figured out how to make money um but it wasn't obvious that Facebook would would be justify the valuations that it drove because mm -hmm. there there was no obvious economic there was no market in Facebook yeah. attention. While from day one in crypto there is there's mm -hmm. there's thoughts about how do you balance people who are doing the work of the network, mm -hmm. mining, proof of stake, whatever, with those who are actually profiting from it. And so it, it, it's a conversation that's happening day one. So I, I don't know. I don't see it as a net negative necessarily. Yeah, I mean, think about the difference in. Uh, ads for these companies that you can buy crypto on during the Super Bowl right. last year versus this year. I mean, what do you what do you make of the like commercialization of of all this of like large mainstream companies getting getting involved in it? Yeah, man. If Super Bowl ads show the future, I guess it's all EVs and crypto. That's all it is. And Larry, and Larry David. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was sort of a weird could be worse. Thing. It could be worse. I think I think some like annoying New York Times reporter had a tweet of something along the lines. It was like if. If crypto is just money, I've never seen an ad for money. <laughs> wow, but that's not true. You, seen, you see ads for brokerages and banking and financial yeah. services all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. And that, that was a, it was it was a thing that they said. But yes, um, you can make a fortune just betting on everything New York Times on, and that that would probably that's probably a good idea. It's like the anti Scott Galloway index yeah. that exists. Yeah. Uh, so tell me more about what you make of how the media has positioned itself in contrast to tech. What do you think animates it, motivates it? And uh, okay. how do you think tech has reacted? Yeah, I mean, I, I used to, it's funny because I, I was like the only guy in tech dumb enough to write a book and like, like <laughs> go into media in like a semi-serious way and write for semi-serious publications. Yeah, I started following you when you were a Wired columnist. Where I was, I was Wired like, columnist, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like weird. <laughs> an occasional, occasional Wired reporter. Like I would actually do reported stories yeah. in Texas and Cuba and stuff. Um, yeah, it's weird because I would rail against tech journalism. I think they'd get a lot wrong. I think... They obviously have an anti-tech bias. It, you know, if you believe in Turchin's theory of elite overproduction, these are like elites that have been overproduced. They don't have the, the near the level of wealth and status they feel they deserve to have. Mm. And they're losing out to a bunch of nerds and hoodies and they hate it. And it's like, well, that's, that's about as simple as that. Um, and so they rail against it. Um, that said, you know, it's funny. I can't think of the last tech journalist piece that actually broke out and was like of major concern to techies and like, oh, shit, we've been caught or something. Mm -hmm. At this point, they exist almost as an object of mockery or just like. What was the last example? I can't I can't think of one. I mean, maybe. 
What's the last one that ruffled any feathers whatsoever? Would it have been Cambridge Analytica 2016 stuff or like that, which is completed, still completed utter. Yeah, um, it's funny. I'm getting deposed in that case next week. I just can't. Are you really? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I've actually tweeted about it. That's um, amazing. It's this massive class action, and I have nothing direct to do with it. But they're kind of fishing around for stuff, and so they're dragging me into it. So this is penance for my sins of having called Cambridge Analytica so many years <laughs> i'm actually getting sucked in the lawsuit um what's the last one i don't know i mean it, it might have been something with taylor lorenz alleging yeah. so and so about i've been blocked for a long time i can't see what she's yeah, saying me also it doesn't matter <laughs> both blocked by her it, 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 it's just it doesn't matter it just doesn't they're, they're talking to their own little audience that in the end of the day doesn't particularly matter mm. and i think tech has realized they don't matter and they just go direct and you know when brian armstrong of coinbase wants to say something he just publishes a blog post and he gets more views than he would ever get get talking to somebody at the new york times without the noise the intermediate intermediation noise mm-hmm. and that's just the way a16z launched their own media site why, why would you talk to a tech journalist now i think the savviest entrepreneurs realize that there's literally zero reason to do so well that's the other thing too is like not only is any of it you know, uh, serious reporting that's going to make anyone wet the bed, but also none of it's interesting. Right. Like there's, there's, I have not scrolled past a, a, a like mainstream tech article that I've right. been like, oh, I should read that. You know, that looks interesting. Yeah. Right. I think Benedict Evans had, I think it was Benedict Evans. He posted a screenshot of like the New York Times, Times tech, tech section. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't a single tech story in the yeah. section. It was yeah. just like, it was just a gossip rag about people in tech. It had nothing mm. to do with technology itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, but it does matter not because the audience for the New York Times' tech reporting is the customers of these tech companies. It matters because the audience for the New York right. Times' tech reporting is this town. Right. And That's right. how how do you think the tech world has reckoned with, I think you had this in your blog post announcing that you were joining the Lincoln Network, is that you, you know tech world may not care about politics, but politics sure cares about the tech world. Right. <laughs> and they can still leverage the power of the state to really mess with them. Yeah. And, and it, like for anyone who wants to, you know, uh, pretend like that's not a big deal like there's a reason why most of these companies are still founded in the united states like the center right. for innovation is is here so right. um how are you uh, how do you think tech has come to reckon with or failed to thus far come to reckon with the fact that political is very interested in it yeah i mean it i mean yeah if you talk to political people in dc they're, they're always kind of kind of dump on tech's efforts to actually form lobby groups i, I think tech not just in D.C. I mean, even in San Francisco, for example, there was a recall vote this this week yeah. for the uh, school board, which uh, went totally in the anti-woke direction. Uh, basically, the the woke uh, board members got completely wrecked, yeah. and recall vote succeeded with almost eighty percent of the vote, which is incredible in mm-hmm. San Francisco. So, I, I think broadly, whether you look at the dysfunction in San Francisco or the dysfunction in D.C. in terms of like, is tech making its message heard? Is it getting reasonable? You know, is it getting? Does it have a seat at the table? The answer is almost inevitably no. The question is like, why is tech so bad at representing itself and influencing things? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure, like the healthcare industry, I'm sure buys politicians yes. and gets bills written and makes sure that their little lock-in monopoly there, which is why it's what know, our healthcare system is, right? Which you know, <laughs> it, it, exactly. Which is why uh, you know, diabetes insulin pens or whatever cost two thousand dollars or whatever it is, and why they cost a tenth of that in Canada. They manage to maintain that state of affairs, and tech is not able to do that. Why is that? I think I hate saying, oh, it's all cultural, but I, th- I think it is cultural. I think techies do not understand the influence game mm-hmm. of I think that might be changing. In the case of San Francisco, I know some of the people that were actually organizing yeah, Gary that. Tan and all those guys. Yeah, Gary Tan and Stephen Buss and, and Michael Schellenberg, who's not strictly speaking from tech, but he's sort of tech adjacent. Like they're getting smarter about it and they're and they're and they're like mobilized. Like we're gonna raise money, we're gonna get the signatures, we actually give a shit. and um, you know, they're starting to realize like Dude, SF is like a dinky little town of seven hundred thousand. Right? Like these these people win elections by like five thousand votes. Their their campaign chests are like tens of thousand dollars. It's like nothing by tech standards. It's not that tech couldn't play. They just don't give a shit and they haven't had the the effort and focus to actually do it. They could, and so I don't know. I think if they if they tackled it like they do other engineering problems with also a certain amount of like world weary savviness to understand how the world really works versus in their abstract ideals, then maybe they could have that influence. But I think. They just, uh, I mean, the, the thing is, like, the skills that make you win in tech do not make you win in DC. That's the thing. It's it's, it's very orthogonal skill, skill sets. Well, but also, the if the entire approach that you come to the world with is trying to innovate yourself out of problems, the right. one thing that is impossible to innovate yourself out of, at least thus far, is human nature. Right. And to the extent that the political institutions that exist in American life are a reflection of aggregate of human nature. Right. It, starting new parties or having weird, you know, esoteric libertarian right. ideologies about how the world should be run or, 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 you know, just believing in capital P progress, like all that stuff's eventually going to fall flat when it comes down to a world. The, 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 
one of the rifts that I, I I find frustrating coming out of the tech world is you know they they always are railing against zero sum thinking. Um, politics is a zero sum game, and maybe mm -hmm. that, that that boils down to at the end of the day, like scarcity is real in right. in a lot of domains of life, not just politics, but but certainly in politics. And these tech guys haven't seemed to fully reconcile that yet. No, I agree. Um, yeah, I don't know. The cop out obviously is that like a lot of the a lot of the problems with tech, you know, it's a truism in startups that like the classic like noob take on startups is like, oh, it's a technical problem, right? Most problems inside startups or tech companies are actually human problems, not tech problems. Unless you're really at the cutting edge, like say Elon with SpaceX, you're not really at the cutting edge of like known human technology. You're creating novel technological scenarios and novel business methods. Mm -hmm. But if something's broken, it's usually a, a human problem, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I would say that applies to society writ large, right? Like well, here we have this new technology, which is my phone that your assistant took away, but it's the black mirror through which we're refracting all of human life, right? And we're wiring everyone's brains to everybody else's, right? That's massive. That to me is like printing press levels of like innovation and technology, you know, culturally and socially and politically, we haven't caught up to that reality. So I would put it back to like the outside world. It's like, look, techies created weird, cool stuff. Why can't you get it together enough to create a political system that works within that limitation? Mm -hmm. Like wh why should techies be forced to come up with the solution to like every problem that technology creates? It's, it goes way beyond the can of just technology. It's now we're talking everything in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna engage engage in a little bit of uh, cultural luddism here. Uh, so I I read this book. It's called a uh, Productivity: uh, Theology of Work and Wealth. I am a uh, a Protestant of which you speak, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book about kind of the philosophy behind um, you know how we're supposed to use technology that we're that we're blessed with. I mean, basically, it's a very short book. It's like 100 pages, but basically talking about how like what you can do with an iPhone now is like what you used to need 150 servants to right. do, you know? So, um, and the, and the, and the general like point of the book is, man, we're all being really lazy, like <laughs> with, no. with what we have with this power. But I mean, the fact that, you know, we can do all those things that, that you have the ability to, to research with the touch of a button, something that could take you, you know, years to find the appropriate text for, right. To find the right book is, is, uh, is incredible. Um, so I'm just continually, I guess, amazed by that uh, and, uh, you know, endeavor to use the material I have well. Well, the, the, the digital age gives us this entire new set of technologies. And I think you're right that to a certain degree, it is the responsibility of the rest of society to reconcile what it means to flourish as human beings in that world. So that being said, the political application the application of political power is one of those ways that they'll reconcile it what do you think is there what, what are the few low-hanging fruit items that you think people in this town should use to direct not reverse or stop completely the trajectory of technological progress right. without completely refactoring society um i don't know i mean you know one of the big topics, obviously, things like content content moderation, right? Which is a very Orwellian phrase for basically censorship of various forms, right? I don't know. You could pass regulation that says that uh, private companies have to have to abide by the First Amendment, say, which I know technically they don't have to, obviously, but in the spirit of it, right? Like mm -hmm. again, Brian Armstrong of Coinbase posted a post in which he said, "Well, the spirit of what we do is animated by the First Amendment, even though strictly speaking, it doesn't apply." That's one thing you could do, right? Um, in the sense, you could you can apply a, a federal content moderation standard that makes it hue to a more mm -hmm. open standard that currently is, rather than you know Facebook deciding behind closed doors what is or isn't you know readable or engageable in the United States. That's one mm -hmm. piece of low hanging fruit, I guess. Um, what else? On the privacy side, I mean, privacy to me, <laughs> such a ridiculous topic because, you know, privacy <laughs> privacy has, has relatively short history in Western life. Uh, <laughs> if you actually um, read the Oxford English Dictionary, it wasn't used in modern form until 1813. It doesn't exist as, in a, as a legal principle. 1890, created by Louis Brandeis, uh, more or less. Almost all the case law comes from the 20th century. You know, this right to live as a stranger among strangers was really a result of like industrialization, mass photography, telegraph, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so there, again, if you talk to, you know, lawmakers on the Hill who are trying to create bills that will impact tech, privacy is one of these big hangups. I think it speaks to their constituents who say, oh, yeah, I care about privacy. But then when all this supposed tech lash against Facebook and everybody else came out, they never stopped using Facebook or Instagram, right? The revealed preferences are pretty clear. They actually don't care about privacy. And at some, at some basic level, I think most humans actually think about privacy the right way, which is like privacy is not an absolute good, right? 
nothing is an absolute good. Even speech is an absolute good. Even it is curtailed in certain ways, right? They basically trade privacy for for other commodities like convenience, security, sense of community, et cetera. This is the same thing with Web3 and why right. I think that ultimately like decentralization to the nth degree is not going to work because the, the, there's almost no uh, equilibrium in human well, life until, uh, where people pursue one value to the detriment of all the others. Well, un, well, until they feel a pinch of that, right? Until yeah. you're a Canadian trucker or you sympathize yeah. <laughs> with Canadian truckers and you get debanked, right? Yeah. Uh, which might become more and more common, right? Um, you know, turns out you can lose your job for writing a best-selling book as it turns <laughs> out in this country, even though nominally there's freedom of speech, right? So to the extent, if that actually continues along that directory, I think you might see more and more of a consumer use case for it. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what are the, because it seems like all of this stuff is like, low-hanging dc stuff like content moderation section 230 privacy Hmm. much more broadly like when it comes to reconciling digital technology to human ways of living you've been kind of on your your own sort of trad journey converting to judaism reading the ancients you know studying human ways of life that that existed before modernity what what do you think is the the big problems that we need to figure out if we're not going to just have technology destroy what it means to be human. Oh, well, oh, there's a lot. Oh, yeah. Big picture. I mean, there's a lot of things. There's, there's obviously like a God-shaped hole at the heart of liberalism that's being filled with, I don't know, wokeness or whatever, right? Or in the case of Silicon Valley workers, the companies they work for. Yeah. I'm reviewing this book that's coming out recently, Princeton University Press called uh, um, Work, Pray, Code, that, uh, you know, many people actually sublimate that religious urge at work, um, whether it be a political front of wokeness or just like to use the, the the Becker's phrase, what's the immortality project to which I'm working, right? It's, is it crypto, Web3, Facebook, whatever? Which sounds childish, but it's not in a way. It's like that, that animates you, it gets you going every morning, is what you sacrifice you know, your day to. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I, I do think there's something missing there. I think mm-hmm. their liberalism has gone to the point where a lot of people are what you know what we understand the how, but what's the why? What what's 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 the what's the you know the the conjoined moral narrative that we're all pursuing? I think we don't have an answer to that question anymore. Um, I think that those are the deep answers that I think tech can't necessarily answer. They can build the tools to actually help aid, but I think that those are the, those are the issues that we've kind of lost. And I think I mean if you want me to put my little Bernie bro Marxist <laughs> cap on, but I think capitalism has denuded the, the civic landscape of many institutions that we, we used to you know belong to, whether it be religion, family, region, whatever, nationhood, right? And it's basically nuked one after another until we're just atomized individuals struggling in this sort of economic, um, um, you know, economic uh, treadmill sort of thing, right? So. Yeah, I don't know what the answer to that is, but um, I think I think religion in various forms will make a comeback. Religion never goes away, right? If you actually, you know, it, it, if you look at you know, mainline church attendance and like uses of woke on Google, they're like literally almost like you know exactly one to one zero sum. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, humans need a moral narrative. You know, taboo never cultural taboo never goes away. Right? And you've experienced this. In I know. I, 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 <laughs> you teed it up myself. for me perfectly. You were canceled, Antonio. What, t- yeah. Tell us why well, you were canceled. Yeah, <laughs> well, canceled. But we're like on the Omicron variant of cancellation. Like, it doesn't actually mean that much anymore. Yeah. And arguably, like it actually helped boosted subscriptions and stuff. Um, but yeah, and everyone's getting canceled. Joe Rogan's getting canceled. Yeah. The guy at uh, Ethereum name service got canceled. Everyone's everyone's canceled. If you're not canceled, are you even trying anymore? Mm-hmm. Really? It's like you know, early Facebook engineers used to be proud of how quickly they bring down the site because they they push code changes that were so impactful that they would literally blow up facebook mm-hmm. so like literally if you don't get canceled are, are you really even trying like yeah. have you gotten canceled yet sir i'm kind of like pre-canceled like people don't even bother with me anymore because i'm so insane that i'm just like well, that's the other thing a, you, i'm a political person the, right you right you definitely have to be on the friend like there's like a friend enemy distinction yeah and if you're a total enemy you're not worth canceling it yeah. doesn't matter you're not within that yeah. value system you have to be within the value system yeah. such that you would get canceled. The, the only group of people that really get mad at me anymore online are some variation of my in-group and so uh it's like libertarian conservatives who think i'm a fascist or uh like indians on twitter who think i'm a traitor <laughs> like the, those are the two categories left but the rest of like society doesn't care anymore and also the choo-choo people the train people the train yeah. people that's oh right. the denmark choo-choo people. <laughs> yeah. the trains are a scam yeah. <laughs> trains are a scam i took the acela trains are definitely a scam in this country yeah. they're horrible yeah well, you know, I look forward to getting canceled by the right, too, actually. That'll be exciting. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a piece on National Conservative Conference that I went to. Yeah. And so I, I assume, like, the Sarab Bermuda contingent will come after me at some point as well. Yeah. So. Um, what do you make of uh, <laughs> of the Jane Goodall observing the apes of your last few months, you know, <clears throat> starting to get more into politics, especially kind of wandering through the tribes of the right? What have you learned? What have you observed? T- t- tell us about their ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the American right is going through an interesting moment. It's, it's obviously splitting. They're, they're sort of... 
the, the fusionist Reagan consensus is falling apart, right? <clears throat> Which means like the fusion between like pro-business, low-tax, small government and relative social conservatism is that union is going away. And, you know, the conservatives are becoming status too, right? Mm -hmm. Which I was at this panel from Lincoln Network um, yesterday. <coughs> Sorry. And there was major static between a guy who's libertarian and someone who was more new right conservative who was arguing for state interventionism in the American economy. Yeah, I think that's that's novel. And whether that's just like nationalist in origin, like let's ban TikTok and let's put tariffs on Chinese goods, or whether it's let's work for the Catholic integralist common good, whatever that means, and you know make it hard to buy beer on Sundays because blue laws are really where it's at, which is what someone like Patrick Benin might say. Um, either way, the right is going in that direction in a way that I think it wasn't. My parents were like Reagan Republicans, yeah. like every other Cuban exile. In my <laughs> almost like by default, that's what you have to be. Yeah. But that that world, I mean, where are those people now? They don't exist, right? Yeah. So, well, they well they exist in think tanks. I don't think they exist in the electoral reality. But yeah. uh, a final question: What's the if you were looking at some incumbent in American life, incumbent institution, power center, force, yeah. person even, and you had to essentially short them because yeah. technology is coming for their entire source of institutional yeah. prestige or power. Yeah. What What are the people oh God, who so you many. think should be worried? So many. <laughs> who, who, um, should, who should be really worried? So many. I mean, in politics or economics or anything? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what's mentioned. David Brooks is probably out. <laughs> that's why I just I, he came to mind because uh, we we both went to this National Conservative Conference and he yeah. wrote these kind of very mopey pieces about yeah, I know. his brand of conservatism is over. Yeah. Arguably, it's a funeral with an empty casket because I don't think that that film of conservatism ever really existed as an again an electoral. Well, phenomenon. it existed in the conservative columnist slot at the New York Times. Right, let's say exactly. It's like <laughs> David Brooks is like the Latinx, right, of conservatism and that it's like it doesn't really exist. It's like this figment of the liberal imagination. Yeah. Um although I like his early writing by the way. I think Brooks is is a great writer, but I think he's definitely he's definitely a dinosaur staring at the at the mm. media right so to speak. Um what other institution would I short? I mean, I, I would have shorted the New York Times, but not really, because they've moved to a subscription model. Mm -hmm. And financially, they're actually doing really well. Yeah. Like, as they bought Wordle. They took my Wordle. They, 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 they <laughs> took Wordle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as an institution, as like the New York Times is like the overarching truth of the, the nation, that is going to suffer because that's yeah. just no longer true. But as a financial entity, they're doing very well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no reason things are going to go away. Um, what is going away? Technology, I think, is, again, one of the only vibrant industries and sectors of American life. And technology is only going to get more and more important and more formative around culture mm -hmm. uh, at the level of like weird crypto acronyms on Twitter or everything else. Definitely long technology. Um, I'm sure location, I guess. I think the whole not that I think everything's going to be 100 percent work from home, but I think COVID is definitely the sort of, again, the weird Gnostic virtualization of society and the pixelization of everything got accelerated by like a decade, at least by COVID. Right. Mm. Um there's another, I mean, th that, that's interesting, right? Because we are referring to the status quo ante as if it was a kind of natural order, but the centralization that we've seen in Western cities over the last hundred years is also anomalous, historically speaking. Like people don't concentrate that intensely. They concentrate, but like the biggest histories, uh, the, the biggest cities in history were like a million people. They were not 20 million people. And right. so for people to start to disperse once more across the plains. I think there is weirdness when it comes to like, oh, you can be an employee at an American tech company in Singapore, like, or you can just like right. work from wherever. Um, the dissolving of national borders is odd. But in terms of returning to a less concentrated geographic way of living, it's, it is also a form of returning with a V. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm willing to short cities necessarily. I think there might be a shift of cities. I think mm -hmm. there'll be, you know, Miami will be more prominent than it's been in the past. Um, <clears throat> I, I still think young people, you know, they want to hang out, they want to party and they want to get laid. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you can only do that if you're in close proximity to other young people. Yeah. So I think those who can afford it and are willing to, you know, either pay a premium or get paid a premium, cities will still be there. Mm -hmm. Even in startups, actually, in-person development works better than remote development, I think, mm -hmm. at, at least at the early stages. So like those yeah. whiteboard sessions that you have in a room this size, whatever, like those are actually yep. valuable. There were a lot and of those <laughs> early We days. still do a lot of those. <laughs> And it, that's hard to do via Zoom. It just yeah. doesn't doesn't exist. So yeah. it's kind of a luxury product. But if you can afford it, you would actually choose yeah. to do that. Yeah. That said, you know, girlfriend runs a venture back startup and she hires in her time zone. And she's I don't care as long as you're in my time zone. I'll hire, I don't care where the hell you are. Santiago de Chile or whether you're in Alberta, Canada. Welcome to the party if you've got the skills. Right. And that's also true. So, yeah. I, hard to say. 
I, I, I do think, I think, the, you know what, I'd short the nation state. I think the nation state is done. The nation state, <laughs> I'm going to get Fukuyama in. He's going to be like, Rogan, give me a spliff, totally light up, take a puff. And like, nation states are done. I think people don't realize how young nation states are as a concept. They're, they were basically invented after the Enlightenment. They didn't exist before. Um, World War One was really the death of the pre-nation state order of, you know, vast panethic imperial empires like the Austrian Grand Empire got killed and everything became a nation state, Israel being perhaps the last manifestation of that drive. But the thought that you have a defined border with a nominally defined people with the same system of government and language, I think that's just not going to survive uh, the smartphone. I just, I really see a level of fragmentation that's just kind of impossible. And is that good or bad? Make a value it, it judgment, is, Antonio. <laughs> I, I don't presume to judge. I just, I just, you just observe. It's just like, I, how do you take advantage of this device, right? Like Machiavelli's definition of entrepreneur yeah. who takes both good and bad events and makes an opportunity out of them. I don't know, but I, I do think there's going to be some form of feudalistic politics coming. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, I'm full of Balaji from Navasan, like everything's going to be like a federation of crypto city states, but something, I think things are going to go more in that direction. Yeah. And, uh, on the Miami, the, the Miami point is is interesting too. One of the our mutual friends has a, a line that he has in Miami, which is that you know it's a it's such a great place. The governance is great, really great commercial culture is coming out, and the best part is how close it is to the United States. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Uh, Antonio, where can people keep up with everything that you're doing and and find out more about uh, the weird and wonderful takes you have? Sure. If you want the full AGM firehose uh, at Antonio GM on Twitter. I've got a Substack, uh, thepullrequest.com. I've got a show on uh, Colin, which is a social audio app, also the Pullcrest, and uh, do stuff for the Lincoln Network. But yeah, the Twitter is really the the hub of it all. So just yeah. find me on Twitter. Very cool. Thank you for coming to the podcast, and thank you for coming to Washington D.C. May God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yes, thanks. Thanks for having me. Told you he talks fast. Thank you, Antonio, for coming by uh, the terrible, evil swamp to tape with us. That was a fantastic episode. Uh, again, as I mentioned in the intro, be sure to check out all the programs we have on AmericanMoment.org. You can check out the Fellowship for American Statecraft, AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship, Foundations of American Statecraft, AmericanMoment.org slash foundations, AmericanMoment.org slash join if you want to get involved right now. Uh, be sure to rate and review this podcast. If you ask a question in your review, we'll be sure to answer it on the show. Uh, and thank you guys for for coming back and and listening it's still uh, a huge blessing that we get uh, you know thousands and thousands of you listening every week uh, we have no idea why you do um, but feel free to tell us why you do uh, reach out to us on twitter uh, we're at ammomentorg on most platforms um, nick and i are nick s solheim and s sharma us respectively follow us i think i'm edging pretty close to 10k followers so help me get over that limit um and uh thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.